HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All righty then. (laughs) Yes, indeed, it is Monday, and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm excited to bring to you today um, one of my most favorite journalists. Her name is Marin McKenna. She is the author of Big Chicken. And we're going to talk with her in just a minute. But first, I have a few little topics to address with you in that sort of joys and sorrows segment. I don't really know what to call it anymore because it's not even joys and sorrows. I'm so beyond the joys and sorrows thing. That <laughs> you know, it's just like you don't even know what to say. But I will, in the in the annals of um, sort of food fraud and food recalls, I noticed a couple of things uh, that were really quite interesting. And one of them is that recently, two thirds of olive oils, um, and I, it doesn't say how many, um, were tested over a two-year period, and they were judged non-compliant with one or more chemical or organoleptic um, uh, products. So that means that <clears throat> once again, know where your food is coming from. I mean, these—it's really—it's you got to know the producers. It's really—it's gotten to that point. And then, sort of on the heels of that, <clears throat> and I was reading this in FoodQualityNews.com, by the way, which you can subscribe to too. It's free. Um, In food quality news, um, the following companies have made food and beverage alerts for recalls. And those those countries are USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, England, Scotland, Belgium, France, Germany, Switzerland, Croatia, Lithuania, and Denmark. All of these countries are making alerts to their populations who probably are not getting them. um, But somebody's, you know, someone is hearing them, but not the people who are buying these products. But among the lists of things that are being found as adulterants in food and beverage products around the world. Just get this, you guys. I mean, this is really kind of distressing. Um, Botulism, insect excrement, cleaning fluids. And then there were other recalls related to listeria, allergens, and patulin. I don't even know what that is. Uh, Fipronil, which sounds like a medication. Milk and listeria was a problem. Uh, Norovirus, Clostridium, Botulinum, and Salmonella were all part of recalls. Those were probably on meat. Um, other in- recalls included products that uh, were uh, contaminated with E. coli 026, cyanide, and unauthorized additives, um, and acrylimides, uh, which is another sort of product that is used in, uh, in um, agriculture. And then uh, there was another recall for uh, cryptosporidium and, um, and then, of course, the very benign language labeling. So th- that's kind of it for my, for my um, joys and sorrows, only because I'm a little pressed for time and I want to have a lot of time with Marin. Um, but uh, I just, you know, it just it blows my mind that there are so many things that are creeping into the food supply that we just have no, um, absolutely no idea of what or why or how they get in there. Um, and yet uh, it is, you know, despite all of the efforts and the money that goes into uh, maintaining the safety of our food supply, and I have to say that here in the United States, we are in general a pretty lucky uh, compared to many other countries. But I mean, it's just, it is mind-blowing, um, 
just how much goes on without people really being aware of it. So on that note, uh, I will say once again, just know your farmer, know your food or whatever. Just be, you know, just be mindful of where you're getting your stuff and read the labels and don't buy things with a lot of ingredients in them because then you don't get a lot of the extra things that they don't, that you don't actually want. So um, we're going to take a short sponsor drop. We'll be right back with the wonderful Marin McKenna. We're going to talk big chicken and um, you will enjoy every minute of this program and it will scare the daylights out of you. Stay tuned. Bob Moore is the founder of Bob's Red Mill, top quality supplier of grains, flowers, and general nutritional goodness from Oregon. He's talking to us about their signature millstones, a very specific way of making whole grain flour. So what's the secret, Bob? Follow me to the mill room. Well, these are just like the millstones that the Romans used to grind their grains. In fact, these stones came from the same quarry near Paris, France, where the Romans got their stones. The company that makes our millstones pulls their quartz from the same quarry, and they make mills for us that are just wonderful. Bob explains how the millstones grind much slower and at cooler temperatures than modern steel rollers. The process keeps the grains cool, preserving the flavor and nutrition. Look at what they produce. I love how they keep things simple and just right. All the nutrition is there, just like nature intended. After almost 40 years in the milling business, they're serving up over 400 organic, gluten-free, and whole grain foods right here from the mill in Oregon, sending them off to destinations around the world. We think we can make a difference by sticking to the traditional way of stone milling. And so, that's what we're doing. To learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their mission to bring good food for all, visit bobsredmill.com slash podcast. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're today talking with the wonderful Marin McKenna. Marin is an award-winning journalist and author specializing in public health and food policy. Her work has appeared in National Geographic, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Wired, Scientific American, and Slate, among many other publications. Her 2015 TED Talk, What Do We Do When Antibiotics Don't Work Anymore, has been viewed over 1.4 million times. She is also the author of the award-winning books, Superbug, and beating back the devil on the front lines with the disease detectives of the Epidemic Intelligence Services and her new book, Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats, published by National Geographic. Marin is a senior fellow of the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University and a frequent radio guest. She's been a frequent radio guest on this program. And, um, well, Marin, welcome to the program. What can I say? Happy to have Hi, you back. Thanks for having me back. It's so nice to talk to you. And it's and congratulations are in order on a wonderful book. It was really fantastic. Thank fact, you. I took so many notes that um, it took me a really, really, really long time to read it. But <laughs> but that was a good thing. I mean, it was just it was so jam packed with information. It was it's it's really exceptional. Um, so let's just start with the basics because this book is about how antibiotics changed American agriculture, basically, um, can, or American livestock agriculture. Can you? Can you first explain to people what antibiotic resistance means and how do antibiotic resistant uh, pathogens transfer to humans? Sure. So the easiest way to explain antibiotic resistance is this. Long ago, before, long before humans ever came on the scene, when the world was only a bacterial world, bacteria made compounds, chemical compounds, to compete against each other to compete for living space, for sources of nutrition. And just as bacteria were leveling these compounds against each other, bacteria would also evolve protections against the other bacteria's compounds. So if a compound uh, was intended to dismantle the outer membrane of a bacterium, they would fix their membrane. If it was intended to get inside the membrane and explode the bacterium in some manner, they would protect themselves against that. We took those compounds 
into the lab and made synthetic versions of them and then took them back out into the world again. And bacteria learned to defend themselves against our versions, just as they had against the versions that originated in the bacterial world. And that defense is antibiotic resistance. It's bacteria's way of defending themselves against the compounds, the chemical weapons, essentially, that we level against them to kill them. That's right. Interesting. So, <clears throat> and how do they, and so, so then they travel to humans. becomes resistant, and then it you know it migrates through the world, and then the back, the the it, when we try to um, to cure an infection with that bacteria bacteria using antibiotics, then the bacteria don't respond. Right, that's a scary thought. So <clears throat> let's do a quick overview. I, I know it's really hard to do that, but. <laughs> try of how antibiotics came to be an integral part of livestock agriculture because that that um you know that sort of it was like it it sprang upon the scene and then it it just kind of took over so can you give us just a sort of thumbnail of of how that happened sure sure so the funny thing is that you know i i feel like people who are alert to problems in the food system have the sense that the conversation about antibiotic use in raising meat animals is a relatively recent thing. But in fact, this practice and the conversation about it actually goes back to the beginning of the antibiotic era, which is the late 1940s. So um, the first uh, antibiotic to be on the scene, penicillin, reaches the open market in about 1944, and all the other drugs, four or five drugs that together establish the beginning of the antibiotic era, are all out on the market by 1950. Uh Uh-huh. So those are all, and they change the world. They are incredibly important because they suddenly cure, you know, rampant infections that otherwise killed people in terrible ways before antibiotics came along. Infections that arose from really minor injuries from scratches, scrapes, cuts, as well as from attempts at surgery and, and, um, you know, from the kind of infections that we think of as childhood infections like pneumonia and scarlet fever and so Mm -hmm. forth. So Mm -hmm. antibiotics are this amazing gift to medicine. And then one of the manuf- one of the manufacturers of one of those first antibiotics, a, a smart chemist working at one of those companies, decides to see whether they can open up an additional market for their drug. So uh-huh. the drug is, is oreomycin, the trade name for which is chlortetracycline, and the, this chemist's name is Thomas Jukes, and he's right. actually an expert in the the dietary needs of chickens. But he ends up at this company, Letterly Laboratories, and and not on their antibiotic team exactly, but looking for supplements to add to the diets of animals because in the wake of World War II, there's been a real um, shock to the meat production system, and they're looking for ways to cut costs as a result of that shock. Mm -hmm. So Jukes takes the, the manufacturing leftovers, from his company's drug, chlortetracycline, and he adds them in an experiment to the diets of baby chickens, along with various other kinds of supplements. And when he weighs those chickens at the end of his experiment, the chicks that have gotten the manufacturing leftovers, which contained trace amounts of their drug, oreomycin, have gained much more weight than any of the other chicks in the experiment using a substance that the company was essentially going to throw away. And it takes them a little while, not very long, actually, to figure out what the dosing is, what the equivalent would be if you were actually taking the refined drug and putting it into livestock feed. And that, that dosing is only grams per ton of feed. Yet, even though it's grams, within five years from the end of that experiment, American farmers are giving 500,000 pounds of antibiotic a year to their livestock. And now it's, you know, 34 million a year in the United States. Whoa. That's staggering. And we're going to talk in a minute about how much we use now. But um, but even as early as 1950, uh, sorry, 1947, they had red flags about uh, antibiotic resistance already showing up. And yet uh, nobody seemed to, I mean, even Jukes himself just poo-pooed that. Isn't that true? You know, it's really perplexing to me looking back at this because right from the start of the antibiotic era, there were warnings that... Yeah. If we put antibiotics out in the world, bacteria were going to react the way they always had, which is to say antibiotic resistance 
the, the loss of the power of antibiotics was going to develop. The, the discoverer of penicillin, Alexander Fleming, warns about right. it in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech in 1945. He tells people not to use these drugs casually because they are precious and we will lose their power. And as you say, by 1947, as a result of misuse in medicine, antibiotic-resistant bacteria are already sweeping the globe. Now, to give the people who put antibiotics into animal feed some minimal credit, mm. they did, I think, when I go back and I, I read the, the earliest papers, of which there were very many, this was a very interesting result, that, that animals would gain weight when you gave them these doses. And there was some concern that antibiotic-resistant bacteria were going to arise in the animals, in their guts, because what happens is they're fed these antibiotics as part of either in their feet or in their water, and the right. antibiotics go into their guts where bacteria are already residing, as is true for all of us. Um, but what they thought was that the resistant bacteria would stay confined to the animals and that there would effectively be no downside because if a certain percentage of resistance developed in the animal's guts, then the growth promoters, as they were calling these antibiotic doses, would just stop working. What they never seem to consider is that gut contents of an animal don't stay inside the animal. <laughs> they, they either exit as manure or they, they become exposed when the animal is disassembled at slaughter and turned into right. meat. And that's those, we can talk about this, but those are the pathways by which the antibiotic-resistant bacteria that arise as a result of farm antibiotic use get away from the farm and, and threaten human health. That's right. And, um, and then you, you went on to say that uh, in 1957, you know, after the poultry industry kind of blew up and suddenly everybody was having chicken every day, um, you know, it was sort of faltering. And there was a huge meeting on Capitol Hill with all of the, you know, big chicken uh, concerns and, um, you know, governors and so on um, to sort of address the flatlining of chicken consumption. And, and there was this appeared to be this tremendous willingness to allow consolidation on a grand scale. In other words, nobody was waving a red flag about um, you know, uh, big company, you know, Tyson and Purdue gobbling up all the small farms around them. Um, they, they seem to be totally on board with that, with the exception of one, uh, one person named Margaret Neff Stetzel, who was advocating for smaller farmers. Describe how that happened. I mean, what, what was going on there? Like, why, why were people not uh, concerned about the monopolization of the industry, especially given that it was not so far after the uh, Sherman Act had been passed and so forth? The so, Sherman Act being you know, the There's a really fascinating sort of cycle to me in this history of, um, of the poultry production industry, which I, I and I, I use poultry to tell the story of antibiotic mm -hmm. use in agriculture because that first experiment was conducted in chickens, and because, as we'll, I'm sure we'll get to, chicken plays a really interesting role right now in our reconsideration of antibiotic use in agriculture. But this interesting cycle is that time and time again, supply of chicken gets out in front of demand, mm -hmm. and, then, and the industry has to do something to fix the lack of demand. And this moment that you're talking about, these, these hearings in 1957, is one of those moments when there's just too much chicken and not enough people are buying chicken and the industry is trying to figure out what to do about that. And, um, you know, it's really fat. I went back and I read all the, uh, the transcripts of the original sure. congressional hearings, and it's really amazing how all these companies are willing to just, um, to, to just let capitalism reign, that, that um, consolidation, they consider that consolidation is the natural result of an industry becoming more mature, that they're all going to buy each other, that they're all going right. to produce as much chicken as they can. They, they actually say to congressmen, you know, if you... If any one of us tries to be responsible and backs away from making so much chicken, no one else is going to follow us, and we're just going to right. lose out in this burgeoning marketplace. We have to compete as much as we can. We have to buy other companies. We have to, to, to force down our prices as much as possible. And yeah. that one lone farmer is so um, – I'm sorry, actually, she's not a farmer. She's a, a hatchery operator. Yeah. Um, it's so interesting to me that she is one of the few voices speaking against this. There's actually several times in this history when women 
speak up and are sort of the lone voices of reason in this otherwise rush toward production. Of course, they're not listened to. Of course not. Testosterone and money. I don't know. It's <laughs> it's a deadly combination, isn't it? <laughs> well, one of the things that really um, drove uh, chicken consumption, I think, um, is uh, you talked to us, you, you spoke about acronization, which was actually a totally new concept even to me, and, and you know how much I love the meat industry. Um, but, but, and that was all about making people you know, feel more secure about buying chicken, perhaps over other, uh, other uh, protein products. Um, what, what, what was acronization and what did it do? This is the most bizarre story. I thought it was scary. And I, Unbelievable. I feel a little yeah. validated that you have never heard of it. It turns out that almost no one has heard of it. Indeed, And Aaron. at first, when I sort of stumbled across it in my research, I really didn't believe that this had happened. I even, through a friend, got to meet one of the FDA's archivists and asked if they could help me find any records of this, and they looked at me like uh, they had never heard of this either. Really? But, but you know, I in, in multiple old news stories and old newspaper advertisements and letters to the editor and grocery store advertisements, I... I demonstrated that this did go on. So what was acronization? Acronization was yet another attempt, first by the company that came up with growth promoters in the first place, Letterly Laboratories and Thomas Jukes, to find yet another market for their drug, while also doing a few other things. Um, And what what this represents is after animals that had been fed antibiotics throughout their lives, however their lives were, were slaughtered and disassembled and turned into pieces of meat, that meat, primarily chicken and fish, was dunked into a solution of dissolved antibiotics and then packaged. And the idea was this coating of live active antibiotic would serve to suppress foliage bacteria so that you could move meat, you could put meat in a cold case in a grocer and have it last for weeks instead of for days. Or you could ship it, you know, into the center of a continent where there were not, across South America or across Australia, where there were not sufficient refrigerated ships or, or railroads. So the idea was while making more money for this company to, um, the idea was to increase the supply of chicken. Right. Um, make it make to make chicken and fish more available. And and some of the early experiments are just hair raising. I mean they there are accounts of they tried to do things like like feed very high doses of antibiotic to chickens before they slaughtered them or to pump antibiotic into the veins of cattle before they cut their throats. But in, in the case, so the chickens didn't really want to eat all that much antibiotic, and the cattle, they, they concluded first they couldn't get the cattle to stand still long enough, uh-huh. and also that it took way too much antibiotic to perfuse their muscles, and it was really easier just to dunk them after they were dead. Wow, absolutely incredible. And, you know, at the same time, like in the, in the debate over this, which I, I sort of seem to have stumbled upon when I first started doing this show. You know, I would go to these Animal Agriculture Alliance meetings, and sometimes they would even invite me to speak, which was completely insane of them. But anyway, um, they um, they would say things like, and I, I think I alluded to this in one of my questions, but they would say things like, well, you know, uh, nobody uses tetracycline anymore, so what, you know, who cares whether we use it or not? I mean, and they were still saying things like, well, we don't use them indiscriminately, they're too expensive, which... You know, I think staved people, you know, made people think that, oh, well, they're, they're using it judiciously because it costs farmers so much money. But that's not really true. You just you just proved that by the idea that they were dunking pieces of meat in antibiotic solution. I mean, who, you know, somebody is paying for that. Who would pay for that? The Packers? I mean, they would have. They so would that, object yeah, to that. Yeah, it would have been the Packers. And in fact, the um, so after Letterly, American Cyanamid came up with this Pfizer, the 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 still existing drug company Pfizer yeah. had a rival process that was very similar. They had a similar drug with a slightly different molecule. Mm-hmm. They both got licenses from the FDA to do this, and they required packing houses to to essentially buy licenses from the company in order to and go through a sort of certification process. So it was a double kind of um, uh, income stream for them, both because they were buying the drug and also because they had to pay the companies for the right to use the drug in this manner. Right. You know, I mean, people have said, uh, you know, n- no one would misuse antibiotics, because, as you say, because they are a cost. But in fact... They just haven't been that much of a cost because most of the drugs that have been used historically were drugs that in this in this indiscriminate manner, not the drugs that are used therapeutically to cure animals, but the ones that were used preventatively and as growth promoters 
were drugs that are now, you know, they've been generic for a very long time. Right. Generics are just not that expensive. On my desk at home, I have a two-pound bag of oreomycin chlortetracycline that I bought off the Internet. And I think it huh. cost me, you know, I don't know, $20, something wow. like that. Wow. And that would probably be enough. I mean, you know, I don't want to waste time doing the how many grams go into how many pounds of feed, but that would probably do a dose it's of a, a fair number of birds. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Um, but let's let's move on from that because that, that the whole acronization thing was just such a mind blower. But um, um, you know, when we're talking about antibiotic resistance, and this was post acronization, I guess, because eventually it, it was phased out. Right, this, there was something called the Swan Report in England, and I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that because that was really. Quite quite an explosive report on the impact of the overuse of antibiotics. Um, so, and, you know, describe what that was and how the U.S. responded to that. So the interesting thing about the, the problem of antibiotic-resistant bacteria emerging from farms is that it takes a while for anyone to notice. Um, and, and that's partly because even the consolidation, as we talked about, has been happening at the same time. And so even the, the concept of very large outbreaks of foodborne illness is a relatively new development. And suddenly we have very large outbreaks of antibiotic-resistant foodborne illness. This is something that science and public health just haven't seen before, and it takes a while for them both to get their, their minds around this and also to try to figure out how to trace back the evidence from yeah. sick people through wholesalers, through middlemen to farms. Once they do, and this happens first in England, and my hypothesis for this is that England is, which is, England is where I grew up, and it's just a smaller place. You know, agriculture and towns and cities are more interpenetrated, and they especially more, were more interpenetrated in the 60s. In the town where I grew up in the 60s and 70s, there just wasn't, you know, you didn't have to go very far outside the town to see cattle and sheep. Sure. It was just, they were just naturally there. They're not sequestered thousands of miles from major population centers the way right. we do in the United States. Right. So people started noticing that there were these outbreaks of antibiotic-resistant foodborne illness, that's Salmonella, Campylobacter, E. coli, that seemed to be associated with, animal, with the meat from animals that had been given antibiotics as they were grown. And this became such a concern that eventually the English, the British government, becomes the first national government to start to examine this practice that now has existed for about 20 years right. of routinely giving antibiotics to animals. And they, they impanel a commission, which is what governments do. Uh, and the head of that commission is Michael, Dr. Michael Swan, who at the time was the chancellor of a university and later went on to head the BBC. And two years later, they come out kind of stunningly with this report, the famous Swan Report in 1969, which says growth promoter antibiotics were a mistake and they should be phased out. And by 1971, the British Parliament has accepted that judgment, though it certainly is controversial at the time, and, and that becomes the first national control of farm antibiotic use, which is followed down the road by Scandinavia and then by the rest of Europe, but mm -hmm. not by the United States, because the United States finds itself in a difficult political situation that actually lasts for decades. Mm -hmm. It's still ongoing, as far as I can tell. Am I right? I mean, you know, we still haven't completely phased them out. We're going to talk about the guidances in a minute. But um, in part of your chapter, uh, Epidemics as Evidence, which I think is also the, the Swan Report was included in that, is you make the point that epidemics provided the concrete evidence of animals harboring antibiotic-resistant pathogens and that they were transferring those germs to the humans. And yet in 1998, we still had no regulation over how much and how antibiotics were being used in, in agriculture. Can you describe uh, why the industry, the American industry, was able to continue to insist, despite the scientific evidence to the contrary, that antibiotic resistance was not from animal ag, and that it was really just because, uh, you know, we had misused uh, antibiotics in hospital settings. Because, I mean, I, as I said, you know, when I was giving those talks way back when to the Animal Agriculture Alliance or the NIA or whatever, um, you know, they were people were still like, no, there's no there's no evidence to support that there's any transference of these germs. I'm not kidding you, Marin. They were saying things that Dick Raymond, who was the Undersecretary of uh, Agriculture, or I don't know when, in the 80s or something, um, he was saying, well, it doesn't matter. As long as one works, then it doesn't matter if all the rest of them don't work. You know, we're fine. We're okay. You can keep using them. They're good. I mean, it was, you know, it was really a mindset that was universal in uh, animal ag, at least in large-scale animal ag. And, and I really was, um, I was quite pilloried uh, at one meeting where I gave a talk about antibiotics. They didn't like it all. <laughs> 
I'm sure you've had this experience where the entire room goes absolutely dead silent and everyone is giving you the stink eye at once. I mean, it was like I could have dropped right through the stage at that moment. But anyway, um, yeah, I was not popular and they, and they have since stopped inviting me for these things. But um, not to talk about me, but of course, let's talk about me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I mean, why is it that, I mean, how have they managed to wield so much power um, that they have success, successfully uh, avoided having really any uh, laws, shall we say, never mind regulations, laws that prevent the excessive use of antibiotics. It just does not make sense to me. It's like outsized power. To unpack your question, there's a couple of things that were going on at the same time (laughs) that made it possible to deny this effect, which I think now is you know, very reasonably established, hundreds and hundreds of scientific papers that draw this connection very clearly. The first is that um, is that no regulation, no law or regulation was allowed for decades. And the reason for that goes back to the aftermath of the Swan Report. After the Swan Report was approved by the British Parliament in 1971, we had already started to look here in the United States about the potential effect of antibiotic use in animal agriculture. And um, so the then the Carter administration comes in in 1976 with a whole raft of earnest young reformers mm-hmm. wanting to, to really change the government. And one of those reformers is um, a, a scientist named Donald Kennedy, who has been, is on loan from Stanford University. He's a very prominent biologist. He gets made the head of the FDA. And he is shocked that this rampant antibiotic use has not yet been addressed now more than 20 years after 30 years after Jesus' experiment, more than 20 years after the FDA grants licenses for it. And he announces he is going to hold a hearing in which the, the manufacturers of these drugs must show up and provide evidence that their drugs are not, the use of their drugs in animals is not harming human health. And if they can't provide that evidence, then he's going to yank the licenses that the FDA gave 20 years before. And he never gets to hold that hearing. Really? Because a powerful congressman named Jamie Witten from Mississippi, with, uh, who is, is the head of the committee that oversees the FDA's budget, sends a message up to the Carter White House that if this hearing goes forward, he, Witten, is going to hold the entire FDA's budget hostage. No and kidding. the Carter the Carter White House has a lot of other reforms in mind. This is the point in time where we're, they, they're arguing about uh, other supplements. They're arguing about saccharin. They have a right. lot of things they want to do with the FDA. And so they turn around and they tell their new FDA commissioner, no hearing. You will not consider what's going to happen, what is happening with antibiotic use. You will not impeach those licenses. So... Kennedy sort of throws up his hands, and two years later, he goes back to Stanford. And Witten, there's a sting in the tail of this, which is that Witten, in the appropriation bill that he allows to go through, he puts in a rider that is renewed every Congress that there will be no legislation impeaching animal antibiotic use as long as he is there to sponsor this. And that rider gets renewed and renewed and renewed up until the 1990s. Wow. Until he retires. So he's at, the, right. at the point at which he retires, he's the longest-serving member of the House of Representatives. So first, that's a long answer to part of the question of how is it that people could, um, could uh, claim that there was no effect. So one reason is because it hadn't been legally proven. The second is that though it was it was scientifically proven to the um, to the agreement of every epidemiologist and microbiologist, but in fact, if you wanted 100% ironclad proof, that is not the kind of observational epidemiologic proof um, that that public health takes for granted. You had to kind of wait for the the development of very modern molecular tools. So now ah. we can do, you know, we can do whole genome sequencing very inexpensively on a bacterial isolate from a sick person and construct a, a, a phylogenetic tree that helps us trace that trace back through the molecular clock of mutation, you know, what has happened, where this has come from and how how long it's likely to have been out there and so forth, and it makes it much much more reliable. Uh, more reliable a piece of evidence. So, uh-huh. this, so both science and regulation caught up with proving a thing that you know anyone who had any eyes accepted as happening decades ago. Well, um, one of the one of the things that I didn't include this in the outline, but I want to do I do want to bring it up anyway. Um, 
when you discuss the the way that they are able to trace particular isolates and 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 identify the genetic markers of various bacteria antibiotic resistant bacteria is um, was through the the um, discovery of of urinary tract infections that were intractable that could not be treated. Um, so this is an extraordinary story. To yes, me. you know I think at this point. Anyone who's paid attention to this issue kind of understands that these bacteria migrate off farms because they are, as I said, they've been, been created in the guts of animals. So they move either on <clears throat> on the meat that the animals become or they move out of the animals in manure and through that manure they move into the wider environment. Right. But people kind of have a, a, an association in their heads that all of this antibiotic-resistant bacteria has to do with foodborne illness. With some, it came from the animal's guts. It has something to do with our guts, things like Salmonella, Campylobacter, and so forth, E. coli. Mm-hmm. They, have, they, they are willing to accept that association. But the, the involvement of farm-related antibiotic-resistant bacteria in urinary tract infections and in the infections that come from those, which includes kidney infections and septic shock, that yeah. is something very new to people because it involves a different organ system. And what's uh-huh. happening here, and, and any woman who's ever had a UTI will instantly understand this process, right. is these bacteria are in our guts, but then at a certain point they kind of sneak out of our guts and into our urinary systems, and they create a resistant UTI, which to the average doctor, if they don't think to do testing, will look not like a, a UTI that's not responding to antibiotics, but like a woman getting infected over and over and over again. Yeah. So they just keep prescribing antibiotics. She doesn't realize why she's not getting cured. That infection is effectively being untreated because because she's being given antibiotics that, that don't that work don't for work. it. And so it's free to spread through her up through her body, into her kidneys, into her, her circulation, and to, to cause you know, sepsis and pneumonia and bone infections and just terrible, um, uh, terrible sequelae. And the one estimate um, by one of the top researchers who's looking at this problem, which is known as foodborne UTIs, is that possibly 10% of the UTIs that occur in this country every year could have a foodborne component, in which case that's possibly 600,000 cases a year. Wow. That's, that's, that, that's a staggering number. I have to admit that there was a personal uh, qu- reason that I asked this question, which is that my mother had this. And her urologist was unable, he had, because this was ten, over 10 years ago, no clue. Kept treating her over and over and over again with Cipro, which was, you know, had millions of unpleasant side effects for her and really at one point almost killed her. But anyway, well, let's move on. I just wanted people to know that that is, you know, that's just one of the ways in which um, these antibiotic-resistant bugs masquerade as something else or something that you would never associate with foodborne illness. And MRSA is another one. Um, I don't want to get too bogged down in it, but it's, you know, people think of that as a hospital-borne disease, and maybe it started out that way, but then it moved into the hog industry and poultry and then back into people. Isn't that right? Right. So um, the story of what people call livestock-associated MRSA, or mm-hmm. most, for most people just call, who know about it call it just pig MRSA, is, is a really interesting story because it proves so clearly yeah. the connection between farm antibiotic use and human illness. And the very short version of the story is this, that in the early 2000s in the Netherlands, which is a, a country that has extremely tight control of antibiotics at a government level in medicine, mm-hmm. Suddenly, there was a bloom of MRSA drug-resistant staph, methicillin-resistant uh, methicillin yep. um, in pig farmers, and no one could figure out why this was. Um, and it turned out, when they looked at the numbers, though the Netherlands was incredibly responsible with its antibiotic use in humans, it had left a back door open, and it was one of the highest users of antibiotics in livestock in the European Union, and the drug they were using the most was tetracycline which right. is a drug that was not used in humans for drug-resistant staph infections, of which there were very few in the Netherlands. So this, uh, this resistant staph that started out in pigs, leapfrogged to pig farmers, moved into the wider society, really caused havoc in the Dutch healthcare system, was a staph that was resistant to tetracycline. And that was a big red flag pointing back to the use of tetracycline on pig farms, because the only way that the only alternative explanation would have been that people who had drug-resistant staph 
were, would have been people who got were given tetracycline and the staff became resistant in them. But right. they weren't getting tetracycline. It wasn't being used for staff in the Netherlands. The only place where the exposure to the antibiotic was occurring was in the animals on farms. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I'm going to rush you right along here because I want to talk for a second about foster farms, and then we're going to go back and talk about solutions, including what the Netherlands have done, the French have done, and other countries, and what we can learn from them. But let's, let's talk for a second about the foster farms outbreak, because foster farms was sort of held up as kind of the poster child of, of responsible, um, large-scale animal production or chicken production, right? They had a very... so Foster Farms is a, is a company that is it's one of the major chicken producers in the United States. Yeah. Um, and it's extremely dominant on the West Coast. Yeah. And uh, in um, 2012 and then again in 2013 and, and continuing to 2014, there is a very large outbreak of drug-resistant illness associated with Foster Farms chicken. It, it makes sick more than 600 people who are diagnosed in... 30 states and territories. And wow. the CDC's usual multiplier for the actual size of a foodborne illness mm-hmm. epidemic is that for every person who is, is, go, is sick enough to go to the doctor, is diagnosed and is associated with an outbreak, there might be 30 or more people who sure. either never go to the doctor or never get linked back to that outbreak, which means that this outbreak had thousands, potentially, of victims. And I talked to one of them in the book. Um, right. The thing is, they, what, what is extraordinary about this outbreak is really that it's not extraordinary, that there are very large outbreaks all the time associated with, um, with antibiotic resistance and with food being distributed across the country. And, and it's very hard to figure out these outbreaks because the illnesses are often very separated both in distance and in time from mm-hmm. the antibiotic use that caused them. Now, what was interesting about Foster Farms is, as you say, they were thought of as a very, you know, they were a family-owned company. They'd been going for more than 70 years. They were thought of as very, very responsible. And yet they had this perplexing, you know, and very stubborn outbreak mm. that was very, very hard to pin down. And uh, one of the senior foodborne illness scientists at the CDC eventually suggested that what might be going on here was a thing that he'd been worried about for a while, which is that, you know, when, when, when chickens are killed in a processing plant, their, their necks are slit and then they're, um, they're bled out and they're, they're defeathered in these big rotating drums and then they are dunked into an, an ice and water bath to bring the body temperature down rapidly so that they don't right. start to spoil. Um, so what, what uh, this very smart scientist, Dr. Robert Tokes, uh, observed was that when the bird is warm, when it's in that scalding bath to loosen the feathers, all of the pores in the skin and the, the follicles where the, that the feathers have been yanked out of are all going to be wide open because of the heat. Right. But then you toss them into the ice bath and all of them are going to close back up again, just like, you know, when you read in a teen magazine as a young girl that you're <laughs> supposed to pat your, your, rinse your face with, water to, with cold water to close your pores. Yeah. So, that, so when they, they closed back up again, they were potentially trapping disease bacteria in them. And the bacteria could then, but then the chicken might warm up some as it moved further down the processing sure. line and was cut apart into parts and packaged. And thus, any bacteria that had gotten into the pores of the skin in that defeathering whirling um, could leak out again and contaminate a package. And that is, in fact, what, um, what foster farms went after when they decided in the wake of the outbreak to improve their processes further. Um, the examinations of chickens on the line showed that, though it seemed like there was a very, very low rate of, of salmonella on whole chickens, yeah. um, there, when they checked the chickens after they had been cut apart and, and warmed up a bit, there was a much um, there was there was salmonella present, wow. and that was a surprise. And all that had changed was that the birds had warmed up a little bit and the pores in the skin had opened. Fascinating. So they, they, the company adjusted a number of their processes and now is actually considered a model for the industry because their rates of recovery of bacteria are so low. It was one, yet another one of those sort of unintended consequences and also an, an un, unintended consequence of the way that our consumption patterns have changed because it mm-hmm. used to be that people only bought whole chickens. Right. Um, but it's, it's the extra time on the line cutting the chickens apart because now we prefer to buy chicken parts 
right. that made the birds vulnerable to further contamination. Incredible. And so has have other companies, to your knowledge, adopted some of the practices that Foster Farms has pioneered in terms of managing that uh, disease load? You know, when I when I read the um, the trade industry publications, of which I read many, of course. Um, it does seem <laughs> like this has definitely become a you know a model for the industry and and a way of being alert to this unexpected danger. Absolutely. And and um, the, you know, there's a number of things that right now are propagating through the industry, including um, relinquishing antibiotics entirely. Well, then let's let's go to that because we are running out of time. And and um, and it was very encouraging when uh, a few years ago now Purdue announced that they had spent the last the previous preceding decade phasing antibiotics out of their uh, production line. Um, yeah. And other companies have followed, except of course. The Sanderson Company, which has famously said they will rather die, apparently, than or rather kill all of us than, than change their practices. But um, what has that? Have you seen a, 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 a sort of pulling back? Have you seen Have you seen other companies really sort of starting to adopt uh, Purdue's methodology in terms of better hygiene, probiotics, vaccines, et cetera, um, in order to avoid using antibiotics so frequently? So I think that, you know, that Purdue, as you say, they definitely were the people who led the parade on this. In 2014, this, you know, family company still run by a grandson of the founder stood up and said, we are relinquishing antibiotics. Our, our goal is to be antibiotic-free. And they shocked the rest of the industry. They, um, they are the fourth largest chicken company in the United States. And they really set a model for the sort of a challenge for the rest of the industry to follow. Not all of the there, – there no, there's no question that there's a movement – by most of the chicken companies, with a few outliers, as you observed, <laughs> to to reduce antibiotic use. And they're doing this not so much because they believe or disbelieve in, in the movement of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. They're doing it simply because customers have asked them to, because yeah. customers of various sizes, from families up to big buying systems, have told the industry that they are concerned about this and don't want to spend their money on meat that is raised with routine antibiotic use. But... Some companies are going antibiotic-free. Some companies are switching only to antibiotics that are not used in human medicine, mm -hmm. such as the drug com drug category ionophores, which, right. um, you know, is if we can get out the drugs that are used in human medicine, that means we'll no longer be creating resistant bacteria that would put humans at risk, right, because we won't have undermined the drugs that are used in human medicine to to cure these. Mm -hmm. And a few companies in various parts of the world um, are, are doing kind of, they're, they're sacrificing antibiotics, but instead of going back to sort of older practices such as refining diets or giving birds more space or giving them light, which are the sort of things that Purdue is doing, they're instead moving toward much more robotic, um, hands-off uh, operations, making broiler farms more like the very big caged egg farms on the assumption that it's contact with humans that that somehow transmits disease bacteria. And if you can create a system of growing broilers in which the first time they're touched is the day that they die, then then maybe you can reduce bacteria, bacterial load that way. Wow. I didn't know that. Did you put that in your book? Did I miss that? Uh, Huh. Well, fascinating. Let's see. Uh, some, um, I think I didn't actually, <laughs> but I wrote a story for Slate when I went to one of these farms. Right. Um, there was just no room in the book, but there's. Yeah. A, but I went to uh, to a, a, a demonstration farm um, run by the the Dutch com created by the Dutch company Venkomatic, which yes. is a company that that builds. Um, growing systems, like builds barns and, and egg-laying barns and so forth. And it was like a matrix for chickens. It was um, a warehouse with broilers being grown on six levels. Um, uh, and, uh, and the levels were what looked like trays with litter in them. And on the day that the birds were going to be mm. slaughtered, the levels all turned into slow conveyor belts that carried the birds from the from the spot where they had originally been hatched mm -hmm. um, to the end of the warehouse and drop them into crates and drop and place them and on the truck. Take them, oh my God, Marin, that is so horrible. And I actually saw today on my Facebook feed, you, you know Greg Gunthorpe, right? From Indiana, the pig farmer? Well, anyway, he's worth knowing. Um, and he posted a picture today of a of a of a pig CAFO that is um, instead of being you know big sort of one story houses, it's it's eight floors. It's exactly what you just described, except for it's for pigs. 
I was just... Is it in China? I think it might be. It probably should I, be. I keep hearing stories not. about multi, multi-level yeah. pig farms in China, but I haven't seen any pictures yet, so I'll oh my to God. that up. It's just, it's beyond revolting. But anyway, um, unfortunately, I think we have to wrap it up here, even though I've enjoyed this conversation more than I can say, and I might have to bring you back till we can talk about it some more. Um, but in the meantime, I will do for you what I did not do for um, my last guest, which is give you a chance to promote yourself shamelessly. Where are you appearing... <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll give him a plug in, in, afterwards because Ted Genoways actually did a pre-record with him. So anyway, um, about his wonderful book, This Blessed Earth. So you guys should be on like a twin bill. You should be a double, would be fantastic. double headers would be very somewhere. Wouldn't that be um, so cool? So, uh, so I am Marin McKenna, and people can find out more about me at marinmckenna.com, M-A-R-Y-N-M-C-K-E-N-N-A.com. The website for the book is bigchickenthebook.com, where all the events and uh, are listed, and shortly all the excerpts and reviews and so forth will be, too. It's been Yay. a busy couple of weeks. I haven't got them all up. And if anybody wants to follow me on social media, on both Instagram and Twitter, I am Marin M. CK. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, folks, next week you will be hearing the interview that I did today with uh, Ted Genoways and his about his book, uh, This Blessed Earth. And really, you should read these two in tandem. There was it was it was very interesting to read them back to back. I enjoyed the, the process and, and learned so much from both of you. And I really appreciate you guys. The work that you do is so important, and it's so it's just uh, you know everything I can do to help promote it. I, I certainly shall. So um, thank you, Marin, for joining me. Thanks to Bob Red's Mill, my Bob's Red Mill, my sponsor today. And I uh, will see you next week. Thanks for listening, folks. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Searching for-